Well, we've been looking at uh, spiritual gifts in our study of 1 Corinthians, and I, I tried to convince myself that preaching about gifts on the Sunday before Christmas uh, would be appropriate. However, when I started looking ahead and realized we'd be ready for chapter 14 and a rather critical look at the gift of tongues, I had uh, second thoughts. You know, as committed as I am to staying on course once I begin a study, I do realize that I need to be aware of expectations on special Sundays, and I usually find some way to uh, tie the text into seasonal expectations. But it didn't take me long to determine that uh, there was no way I could turn a serious study on the problem of tongues into a Christmas message. So, what should I preach? Should I just jump ship and preach a generic Christmas sermon unrelated to our study in 1 Corinthians? I thought about it, but I couldn't do it. So, while mulling over what to do, the last verse of chapter 13 jumped out at me. Now abide faith, hope, love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Now surely I could write a Christmas sermon about faith, hope, and love. And uh, that I planned to do. Until several weeks ago. Marilyn, who listens to Rush Limbaugh more than I do, <clears throat> and will not go there, she heard an interview on his radio program that really impressed her, and it was an interview with his brother, David Limbaugh, and it was about his new book, Jesus on Trial. Now, I've read a number of books on Christian evidences and really didn't feel the need to read another one, but she convinced me to order it. And after it arrived, it remained on the bottom of a stack of books I was reading. When I finally got to it, I quickly discovered it wasn't what I had expected. It was more about David Limbaugh's coming to faith in Jesus and what convinced him than it is about actually putting Jesus on trial. And in the second chapter of his book, Aha Moments Part One, he talked about another book that had made a real impact on him, a book by Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Now, the mention of his name really got my attention because I used to watch Bishop Fulton Sheen on TV as a boy. Now, apparently he was just a bishop at that time, but I didn't really know what that meant. In fact, I didn't even know he was Catholic. I just thought his name was Bishop Fulton Sheen. <laughs> And I loved hearing him talk about, uh, about God and Jesus while riding on a blackboard in a flowing cape and a little skull hat. Well, his program and uh, 
Kukla, Fran, and Ollie were my favorite, my first favorite TV shows. Anybody remember Kukla? Oh, yeah. All right. All right. All right. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Limbaugh credited Sheen's book, Life of Christ, with changing his thinking about Jesus, and he challenged his readers to ponder three things that Sheen says distinguish Jesus Christ from any other man who ever lived. When I read them to Marilyn, she said, that'd make a good sermon. So now what? Now what? Faith, hope, and love, or three things that distinguish Jesus from any other man who ever lived. Well, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that together they can make a really good message for Christmas. Not necessarily a sermon per se, but some really good thoughts for Christmas. So this morning, rather than an actual Christmas sermon, I'm going to simply share with you some thoughts from the Apostle Paul, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, and David Limbaugh, with a few scriptures thrown in to the mix. It's a change of pace from what we usually do on Sunday mornings, but I think it will make a nice Christmas message. We begin with faith, hope, and love. And obviously all three can be related to Christmas, to the coming of Christ. The writer of Hebrews tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And in the midst of reminding us of the faith of the Old Testament saints... He notes that they all died in faith without receiving the promises, having merely seen them from afar. We, on the other hand, have received the promised one. The Messiah came to earth and was born in Bethlehem nearly 2,000 years ago. Now, some might suggest that having faith in something that happened so long ago might be as difficult for us as it was for the Old Testament saints who, who saw the promises from afar. But a huge difference is that they could only look ahead to promises that hadn't been fulfilled while we look back on the ones that have. And even though it happened a long time ago, and we didn't actually see the promise come to fruition, we have the eyewitness testimony of those who did. Who, as the Apostle John noted, heard, saw, and handled the word of life. It's on the basis of their testimony. And... As Fulton Sheen points out, by passing the tests of reason and history, that what the Apostle Peter wrote in his first letter is true. And though you have not seen him, 
you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Our faith gives us the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And the things we hope for are necessarily things that are not seen. For as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, 24-25, For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. The saints of old were hoping and waiting for the promised Messiah to come. We await His return. And we know that He will return because He came as expected and according to promise the first time. Our hope in the future has been secured by the coming of Christ to a manger in Bethlehem nearly 2,000 years ago. And his coming was the most amazing expression of love ever given to mankind. For as we read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And it's that love giving to us on Christmas that motivates us to love one another all year long. For as John wrote in his first epistle, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love by this. The love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The Bible tells us God sent His only begotten Son to save us from our sins. But how do we know Jesus was God's Son? How do we know He is who He claimed to be? Well, this is where we pull in Archbishop Sheen and David Limbaugh. In Limbaugh's book, he refers to what Sheen had to say in the first chapter of his book, 
entitled, The Only Person Ever Pre-Announced. And rather than read the summation that Limbaugh gave, I want to read some of what Sheen actually wrote. History is full of men who have claimed that they came from God, or that they were gods, or that they bore messages from God, Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, Christ. Each of them has a right to be heard and considered, but a yardstick external to and outside of whatever is to be measured is needed. So there must be some permanent tests available to all men, all civilizations, and all ages by which they can decide whether any of these claimants, or all of them, are justified in their claims. These tests are of two kinds, reason and history. Reason because everyone has it, even those without faith. History, because everyone lives in it and should know something about it. Reason dictates that if any one of these men actually came from God, the least thing that God could do to support his claim would be to pre-announce his coming. Automobile manufacturers tell their customers what to expect, a new model, when to expect a new model. If God sent anyone from himself, or if he came himself with a vitally important message for all men, it would seem reasonable that he would first let men know when his messenger was coming, where he would be born, where he would live, the doctrine he would teach, the enemies he would make, the program he would adopt for the future, and the manner of his death. By the extent to which the messenger conformed with these announcements, one could judge the validity of his claims. Reason further assures us that if God did not do this, then there would be nothing to prevent any imposter from appearing in history and saying, I come from God. Or, an angel appeared to me in the desert and gave me this message. In such cases, there would be no objective, historical way of testing the messenger. We would only have his word for it. And, of course, he could be wrong. Socrates had no one to foretell his birth. Buddha had no one to pre-announce him and his message or tell the day he would sit under the tree. Confucius did not have the name of his mother and his birthplace recorded, nor were they given to men centuries before he arrived, so that when he did come, men would know he was a messenger from God. But with Christ, it was different. Because of the Old Testament prophecies, his coming was not unexpected. What separates Christ from all men is that first, he was expected. Even the Gentiles had a longing for a deliverer or redeemer. And at that point in his book, Sheen gives some specific examples. 
And he continues, this fact alone distinguishes him from all other religious leaders. We pick up now from Limbaugh's book. The second thing distinguishing him from all others is that once he appeared, he struck history with such impact that he split it in two. Dividing it into two periods, one before his coming, the other after it. No one else did this. Even those who denied Christ is who he said he was, writes Sheen, are forced to date their attacks upon him, A.D. so-and-so, or so many years after his coming. I've thought about that a great deal. Christ is the only one who divided history. He had to have made a supernatural impact on the world for that to be true. Now, as a little aside, even the growing use of BCE, before the Common Era, and CE, Common Era, used in an attempt to secularize dating and to avoid recognizing Jesus as the Christ, have the alternative meanings of before the Christian era and the Christian era. No one can get away from the fact that the coming of Jesus is the dividing line of all history. Limbaugh continues. As fascinating as the first two examples are, the third one particularly grabbed me because I'd never heard, read, or thought about it quite in this way. According to Sheen, every other person who ever came into this world came into it to live. He came into it to die. Death was a stumbling block to Socrates. It interrupted his teaching. But to Christ, death was the goal and fulfillment of his life, the gold that he was seeking. Few of his words or actions are intelligible without reference to his cross. He presented himself as a Savior rather than merely as a teacher. It meant nothing to teach men to be good unless he also gave them the power to be good after rescuing them from the frustration of guilt. The story of every human life begins with birth and ends with death. In the person of Christ, however, it was his death that was first and his life. That was last. And this to me, Limbaugh writes, was the culminating eye-opener. It was not so much that his birth cast a shadow on his life and thus led to his death. It was rather that the cross was first and cast its shadow back to his birth. His has been the only life in the world 
that was ever lived backward. Imbibing these truths caused me to look at Christ and Christianity in an entirely different way. It provided a new prism through which to understand the faith. One that has infused salvation history with fuller meaning and helped me to understand Scripture with greater depth. This perspective illuminates why Jesus, who had no fear, was so intent on escaping the crowds that wanted to kill him. It explains why he rebuked Peter for defending him with a sword when the soldiers came to arrest him. It helps us to understand why the disciples were often mystified by some of his teachings and didn't fully grasp the gravity of his message until after he died and was resurrected. He didn't come to deliver his people by defeating the Roman Empire and establishing an earthly kingdom. Not in his first coming anyway. He came to die. He had to die so that he could conquer sin and death. And people like Peter who interfered with that were, in his words, doing Satan's work. Satan brought death into the world and Christ came to vanquish it. Once he had lived his sinless life and given us his teachings, it was time for him to go. True, he didn't want to suffer and experience the anguish that separation from the Father would entail. He didn't want to feel with every molecule of his existence all God's wrath as he stood literally in our place as if he had committed every one of our past, present, and future sins himself. He so dreaded this anguish in his human form that he asked if the Father could relieve him of his misery. But he knew better. He had come to die so that we could live. Which is why I think he didn't lift a finger in his own defense when he was on trial. If Judas Iscariot hadn't betrayed Christ, he would have been delivered into the hands of the authorities in some other way. And no person or authority in the world would have been able to interfere with God's sovereign will with his mission to die on our behalf, be fulfilled. There is no other person in human history about whom such truths apply. I want to close by quoting one other person, the prophet Isaiah. He pretty well summed up who Jesus is and why he came some 700 years before Christmas. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his, her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Christ's coming was long expected. His coming is the watershed moment of all history. And He is the only man to be born for the expressed purpose of dying. His coming confirms our faith, guarantees our hope, And is the most amazing expression of love ever offered. I trust that gives you something to think about this Christmas.